Hello, and welcome to the SensiLab Creative AI Podcast, episode 15. My name is Dom McCormack. I'm the director of SensiLab, and joining me at the console today, physicist and PhD researcher Nina Ratchich. Hey, Nina. Hey, John. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. And back after a week's absence, we missed you last time, former SensiLab app developer, emphasize former, <laughs> deep learning expert and 10x engineer, Dilpreet Singh. Hey, Dilpreet. Hey. Uh, this is, no, my introduction gets better every, yeah, yeah, every yeah. week. I'm trying to lengthen it out. Yeah, yeah. And we're joined by a special guest this week, all the way from the Northern Hemisphere, Representing the caliphate of computational creativity, <laughs> the Abu Bakr, yeah, sorry, this metaphor is not really working, <laughs> okay. Professor Simon Colton. Welcome, Simon. Great to be here. Yeah, great yeah. to have you. So what a big week it's been in creative AI. We've seen the announcement of the Lumen Prize, which is a, a big prize for computational art. And I think Simon would agree with me here. Anyone who's been a past winner of that is certainly in the pantheon <laughs> of, uh, of the computer art greats. Worthy of being on a pedestal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put you, John. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So who won this year? Uh, Refik Anadol. Okay. Um, with a piece called Melting Memory. Okay. And I want to understand what is going on here with this piece. Because I watched the video. We watched the video just before and I don't understand. Is this, is this happening in real life? It's scan art, right? So it's just a screen. Yeah. That looks like a sculpture. It looks like a sculpture, but it's just a projection, I think. Oh. Yeah. So. Pretty cool projection though. It's a yeah. pretty cool projection. I think you really need to see it. So it's not great material for a podcast to be trying to articulate what it actually looks like, but it's kind of abstract, swirling vortex of form that just kind of swarms around and does stuff. It's huge. Is it? Is it more than data visualization? Oh, that <laughs> sounds quite harsh, but... Um, no. Yeah. And what's the concept? Interpretations of EEG data. Mm. The, it's titled Melting Memories. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Would you call it an AI work? It may well use AI techniques. I, I think he uses GANs a lot in his, yeah, in his art. Yeah, I would call GANs graphics now, or audio, Okay, rather than AI, really. So that it's sort of two years in a row that someone working with GANs has won the Lumen, the, the big the gold winner. Because last year, 2018, it was Mario Kligerman. Uh. Should I take back what I said about the Lumen Prize actually being... <laughs> No, I mean, the, the prize is all about the best usage of technology or the, or the best art created by technology. Yeah. And GANs are technology. It fits very nicely. It just, it's not necessarily AI in the, in the sense we dreamed about when we were boys, mm. which is actually artificial intelligence. It's graphics techniques which have come from deep learning, from neural networks. Mm. Um, it, it just, as we'll get onto later on, it's, it doesn't explain itself. It doesn't have a, any motivation. It, it's not artificial intelligence in the sense of you know trying to be or approximating an artist it's a, it's just another great tool in the artist toolbox so what you're saying is that you went on the judging panel uh, absolutely not no <laughs> no <laughs> so we've had the lemon prize there was also an event in london at the science museum could robots ever become artists did anyone go to this Simon, you didn't go i didn't go but um, i know murray shannon was on the panel yeah and jonathan jones the um oh, yeah our friend jonathan jones, jones. yes yeah yeah wow. he was there I've always wanted he, to try yeah. and meet him to <laughs> to really annoy him by agreeing with him because he'd expect me to be absolutely against his uh, his very staunch view that AI or yeah. computers yeah. can never create real art. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I overlap. I, I agree yeah. a lot of, with what a lot of he's really said. Uh. Um, and I really wanted to kind of meet him and say, "Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, good on you, mate." Yeah. Yeah. We love we love Jonathan Jones, right? Yeah, yeah we yeah. do. Yeah, we're all about it. Yeah. 
And the third thing I wanted to just quickly raise was Arthur Miller has a new book, The Artist in the Machine. Simon, you're an important part of this book, aren't you? So I expect. Yeah. I really haven't read it yet. Um, and apologies <laughs> to Arthur for that. He invited me to the book launch. He does listen to this podcast. Mm. I, I'm sure he does, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, he invited me to the book launch, but I wasn't in London um, that day. And he interviewed me over three or four hours yeah. at length, and I've met him a few times. Um, so I did expect um, some of the material I, I talked to him about to be in there, but I, I can't say I've actually read the book yet, which is uh, annoying. I really should have. Yeah. Mm. So the title of the book is The Artist in the Machine, The World of AI-Powered Creativity. So is he looking at just artistic creativity or more broadly other kinds of creativity? Not entirely sure. I mean, okay. I, I do know we overlap in our thinking. I tweeted... I, got a, I tried to get into a Twitter storm to get my followers up uh, recently, uh, and I picked <laughs> on uh, a tweet by Ken Goldberg saying that, you know, if, if, if a computer creates an image, it's only ever being used as a paintbrush. And I thought it was an incredibly tired and tiresome mm. uh, line, and I tweeted about this, and various people weighed in, and Ken kind of stepped back from it. Um, and then oh. Arthur Miller um, also you know, weighed in a little bit by agreeing with me that um, yeah. one line which had resonance with him, I think, was that most people who say that software um, can't create art or can't be an artist really want to say, I don't want software to be an artist or I don't want software generated stuff to be called art. Well, I, d I don't agree with that, but I do understand that opinion. I just think it would be more honest if people stop saying that software can't be an artist and start saying, I don't want it to be an artist. This is something very human that we want to preserve for humanity. Uh, but people can't do that because imagine saying that about a particular ethnic minority or a particular gender. Or right, be but software, software isn't a person. Yeah, but it, it, if you say it out loud, I don't like it because it's made by software, it goes against all of this death of the author stuff, all of this uh, liberal-minded thinking about the arts and creativity. It's very difficult to say you dislike something because of who made it or what made it. Um, but I, as I argue in a few papers, I, I don't think software is an artist or, or, or needs to be treated like that. That doesn't mean to say it can't create great art and it can't be creative. Um, it just isn't a person. But it doesn't have the same consciousness, intelligence, emotional life as a person either. So but it's hard to offend software. Sure. Um, I think so I don't see why anyone would be worried about offending software. Well, because if, if you start expressing... Um, People really do buy into the death of the author line that it doesn't matter where it came from, who created it, judge it by its own, mm. uh, judge it on its own. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether it was by a, a street cleaner or a you know, professor of poetry at Oxford University. If it's a great poem, it's a great poem. Um, I've never bought into that. It doesn't hold up at all in the age of computational creativity. But really people do like that idea because it's very liberal, it's very democratising. Um, and so if you start... Is it the thin end of the wedge, a slippery slope? If you start saying, I don't like software being creative, I don't want it to be creative, do you then move on to you know, other, other groups of creatives like people? Um, it, 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 I think it is quite offensive to think that. I'm, mm. I'm certainly not offended by people who don't like software, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't know. It seems, it seems like you're ascribing a lot to a piece of software that yeah. is probably not there. I feel I like don't it's, feel it's, it. don't you think it's, it's a jump to say if people think that about software, they're going to move onto groups yeah, of people. Yeah, next thing we'll have the Holocaust. It's, it's, mm. is it, you know, okay, that's a hell of a... <laughs> uh, well, that's what you were kind of implying, right? It's a slippery it's, uh, mountain. It's a slippery mountain to... Yeah, well, I, I, was, I, was, I was questioning whether it might feel like that, that if you are prepared to say something about um, one group of creatives, 
in private, perhaps, do you also mm. think the same thing about other groups of creatives? Um, and there is a lot of prejudice out there. Um, so it, I still it, think I don't really think of software as people, though. Uh, well, but people in like general, you, you can't offend software. I can say, you know, you can't uh, you can't torture software, you can't imprison software, you can't uh, lock software in a room and make it do things against its will. So then, why 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 would you dislike something because it's by software then? I don't know why you would say that, but maybe because they just don't like. Maybe it is just because they don't like the work. But but they never say that. They they don't dislike the work. They dislike where the work came from. That could be wrapped up in the fact that it comes a lot from computer scientists, and there's still mm. a hell of a lot of prejudice against computer scientists. But and it also could be that people like stuff created by people because it's better. Yeah, they just think maybe the the sort of idea you have in your mind when someone says, "Oh, a software created this painting," you immediately think a programmer wrote a piece of program that created this output, right? Then, you know, the assumption would be, well, where's the creativity in that? Did the software actually make it? Or was it just a person writing a tool that made the artwork? Where's the credit to the software then? There's a lot to unpack Mm. there from the two comments. But um, (laughs) I would absolutely agree that people want um, art to be created by other people. And that's because creativity helps us celebrate being human. Um, When you think about um, Mozart, you know, he had the same mind as us or the same physical brain um same he had you know Not a lot exactly. of pouches. well yeah but he he managed to make uh, amazing art with the same physical equipment that we've got we can admire that we can use that as a cause for celebration so i, I think it's perfectly natural to to want to think in in terms of art as only being made by people. I don't necessarily think that it's because it's not better. I think computers can make art, which would be amazing if it was made by a person. But the reason that they don't, no one likes it is because it wasn't made by a person. Back to Dilpreet's point about where is the creativity, there's a very uh, kind of old-fashioned notion that a person writes a program and then the program makes something. Um, we, we all know that there are other ways of, of programming these days, differential programming, you know, starting with um, machine learning. I mean, I, long before the deep learning boom, I was using machine learning as a reason to um, explain that software can be programmed without coding. You can get it to do things without, um, you know, without explicitly saying do this, then do that, then do this. Um, and some of the art coming out now, I wouldn't even know how to program it. I mean, this goes back to really early evolutionary art. You produce these amazing pieces, um, and then you think, you step back and you think, how would I write a program to produce that art? And you realize you couldn't. What you can do is evolve a program to produce that art. And these well, days, no, you, you, you write a program that evolves to produce that art. Sure, it's a, yeah. you know, a matter level. Nina, what do you think about <laughs> this? Uh, well, so I'm a bit confused about Simon's uh, opinion here. Yeah. Because you, so you're saying that you really do think that software can be an artist, yes. but not a poet. Well, poetry is very difficult. It, absolutely, software can be a poet when it starts write about writing about its own life experiences. Okay, and then in the same way about it can be an artist if it's creating art about its own experiences. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I have this kind of list of yeses and nos. I don't think <laughs> software is ever going to be a person. I don't think we, we, we want that or need that. I do think software can be creative. Do you think it can be seen as a poet or an artist um, or a musician, um, but uh, won't be taken seriously because it wouldn't be authentic? Um, if you think about reading a poem, you really kind of want some authenticity in the authorship there. And so when software writes about childbirth, this example I use over and over again, you, you know, it might be a fantastic poem. You know, if you'd written it yourself, you'd be really pleased with it. Or if your child wrote it, or it might win a prize had a person wrote it. 
Um, but because a person didn't write it, um, it's probably not even classed as a poem. It's just a bit of text made by a computer. However, if the software starts writing about its own experiences, and software does get out there now and have real-life experiences. What kind of experiences do you think software currently has? The example I use in my papers is a heavy metal robot group um, that tours the world mostly in Germany. Um, and they tours get the world <laughs> mostly in <laughs> Germany. Yeah, they, they go on world so tours. So tours Germany. Well, they go on world tours, which <laughs> might in Germany. It's like France, the it's uh, like the World Series for Americans. Yeah, exactly. Right. They uh, like okay. they like Canadians and you know Japanese and Mexicans play, but not the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it, this is a rock group. I've forgotten what it's called. It's got a, it's got a nice pun for a name. And it goes out there and um, it, it performs on stage, um, these robots thrashing away. Um, it's really not AI in many respects. You just plug a MIDI file in and, and the, the robots move around and the music plays. Um, but that, they have actual life experiences. People jump on stage. Um, they go from town but to town. But they have no knowledge of a life experience but, or no... But they can't introspect on their life experience. Uh, well, you, you, you've made a massive leap to other huge parts of humanity, like consciousness, introspection. Well, but in order to project something about your life experiences, you have to be able to introspect on them. We can just start by recording them. Um, so the, Right, the but a tape recorder can record, but it can't project about its life experiences. Well, what if it starts writing poems about those life experiences? So if the, if the rock group um, started to get into composition and started composing things based on the experiences they've had touring Germany... Um, yeah, but you're using a loaded term, experiences. That, like well, the experience of a tape recorder recording something is just the changing of the magnetic particles on the tape. It's not an experience. I mean, that's the experience. Well, that's you're, you're using loaded terms in terms of introspection. These are huge words which would take <laughs> decades to We're going to get into too many talking. Also, like, it decides to write. It, does it just have a thought that I've recorded this, I'm going to start writing? Yeah. Or does someone tell it, it to seems, write? It would be hard-coded in to be like, now nah, write a poem. Now nah, write a poem. Way. Or is it going to be like, oh, writing exists. I should write. Yeah. Where? Yeah. So this is intentionality, and we've, we've studied this in computational creativity. I'm, I'm not saying we've solved all of these problems. No, no, They're no. perfectly good um, criticisms, but you can model intentionality. I've, I've got software which... Under certain circumstances, you might say that software intended to do something um, when you can't really attribute what it's done to anybody else's choices. Um, and you can set software up in that way. Um, these are things we, we know about. They're not easy to, to solve. Um, but I do think that the first stage, I mean, we, we are years and years away from truly creative software. as we are Centuries, with, perhaps. So, uh, I, you pick your own number, really. Um, we, we just don't know. And um, But what you can do is plan. You can start doing the simple things. So software, like my painting full software, it goes out there. It um, interacts with people in, to some extent. Um, it asks them to pose for them. It, you know, it paints their portrait. There's, there's an interaction of sorts. It could start remembering those interactions, recording as much as it can about the environment. Was it an noisy gallery? Was it a pub? It's painted in pubs. Uh, what did the people say about the artwork? Um, what did they look like? All these things it can record, and then it could use that in artworks that it makes in the future. Mm. Um, and if it started writing a poem about that night it was in a pub, um, then at least you can say that it's authentic. It's not making this stuff up. It's not pretending to be a human having a child or giving childbirth. Um, it's actually t writing a poem about its own experiences. But it's the same as uh, Am when Amazon recommends something for you. So Amazon's life experiences is all the books that you, or the other things you bought on Amazon and Amazon synthesizes something new that it thinks you might like. It's the same thing, right? But my favorite there as an aside is um, Amazon saying, I see you like bread. You really should try toast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a classic. <laughs> but I don't understand 
why that's relevant um, here. Well, it's, just, it's the same thing. It's not specific to art. You're saying this. You're saying your software records the information about where it was doing stuff. Well, you know, like what, lots of data processing systems record information about your browser type and what you purchased and all of those kinds of things. And they use that in a machine learning, artificial intelligence sense, to target advertising to you, to recommend yeah. things to you, and they're really good at predicting what you like. The, the difference so, is that that's used to help people, um, whereas I would like to record um, what software does in these interactions in order to help the software. Um, I, again, this is very blue sky, very kind of theoretical. But at some stage, and we're, we're way past that stage right now, really, <laughs> software does things which we don't understand. You know, black box systems, they're, they're not explainable. And one way to explain yourself is through artistic production. Mm. Um, maybe it's a poem. You can't explain everything, but you can at least get across aspects of that. And so I don't, there is a difference there. With the Amazon example, that's to help people to, to buy more books. It's um, to help Amazon make more money. Make more money, yeah. Um, whereas what I'm talking about is the software records details about its own interactions with the world in order to help it express things about its own machine condition. And this is where we're going with the philosophy behind mm. myself and Alison Pease. What is the um, analogy to the human condition? What does it mean to be a piece of software in 2019? Um, and again, you know, 20 <laughs> years ago, people were laughing about this. Uh, maybe uh, not even 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, 20 <laughs> minutes ago, probably. <laughs> um, but um, it's an interesting evolution of our thought process. It goes back to framing, getting software to not just produce something like a poem or a painting, but actually explain where it came from, its motivations, what's gone into it, what it thinks about it. Um, then that moved on to questions of computational authenticity. Um, so it might be, you know, it might tell you about this poem that it generated about childbirth. Um, and give you lots of framing, but you never feel like it really experienced anything valuable to go into childbirth. The natural step on from that is to talk about software, talking about its own life experiences, and then a further step from that is to think about the machine condition. Mm. Um, what can software tell you about itself through its artwork enhanced by its own experience? Do you think people would really be interested in the machine condition of a server sitting in a server farm? And like my bits went on, my bits went off, my <laughs> memory well, was exceeded, my core corrupted. My what? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> perhaps not. But they might be interested in that piece of software which ran over their cat when driving their autonomous car. Maybe a poem won't be the right way to explain why you <laughs> run over a cat. Um, but um, there are you, you've picked on the kind of nematode worm example of software. There are there is. But it's the know, most pervasive, and sure. the, it's the most widely studied scientifically. And and there are billions of people on the planet, and they're not all artists, and not all poets. So we can start with software which actually does have. Uh, a history, things like the painting Fool, like um, Mechica by um, Rafael Perez de Pez. These, these are these are bits of software which have have a have an artistic history. They, they have produced things, albeit in collaboration with people, of course. Mm. And start with those bits of software, the bits of software which would benefit from explaining their condition, um, because maybe their artwork will be taken seriously more seriously as being authentic. Mm. Well, speaking of explaining, that was actually our topic for today, <laughs> which we should... Great segue. Yeah, good, yeah. good. Yeah, well yeah. done, Simon. Long segue. <laughs> yeah. That was the longest introduction ever. <laughs> right. uh, so we did get a request from a listener. Wow. Yes. yes. Um, so Ben emailed us. Yes. Um, he had a couple of points, so I'm going to... But we're going to talk about the explainability yeah. one Ex that he talked about. Explainable AI. So I'll just paraphrase what... It, Ben was saying. So he's sort of talking about that machine learning has become a very hot area in medical diagnostics, but these algorithms can't meaningfully 
explain how they reach their conclusion. Sure, intuition plays a massive role in how humans diagnose, but a hunch is generally a starting point. This is what Ben's saying. But an algorithm can't really support the diagnosis. The best thing you might get could be, I'm quoting, a second derivative of the Hessian matrix was too low. Classic cancer. <laughs> so should, should what, we... What does that all mean? <laughs> so this is, this is him saying that this is the best you're going to get out of a machine learning algorithm, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's how it reaches its conclusion. So do we think this is a problem? Ben specifically picked the field of medical diagnostics, which where it could be important. Well, I think in medicine it is important for a number of reasons and a lot of them are just psychological reasons more than technical reasons that people need to be assured about how a decision was arrived so you know if you if you go and see a medical specialist and they diagnose a condition and it's you know it could be a life-threatening condition they usually go at great pains to explain how they reach the conclusion for that diagnosis they don't just come to you and say, you know, you've got this problem. Mm-hmm. They say, well, look, you know, these these indicators are usually strong indicators in previous cases. And so you, they're trying to help you understand why you've got the condition that you have. So for a machine like a neural network, which, you know, as Simon alluded to earlier, is very complex, often very complex and very difficult to reverse engineer, it's almost impossible to work out how it actually arrived at its decision. I mean, you can you can get sort of general indicators like how confident it is about it. Like I'm really confident that this is X or this is Y, or I'm not very confident, but it could be X, Y, or Z. So I, I think I think there is there's a real point about that about explainability. Yeah, one thing I think we should clear up at the start is model interpretability and explainability. Yeah, those are different two different things. things. Yeah, explainability. So interpretability is like you're trying to find cause and effect. Like, oh, if I change this, do I sort of know what's going to happen? You're trying to interpret the results or the the portion on this image was bigger. Would it say it's a cat or whatever? Explainability is like what's actually going on inside the model. Mm. Like what's in there? Can you actually meaningfully determine the connections between the neurons, right? I think there's a difference and we sort of confuse that. Mm. Um, I mean, the irony is that these black boxes are incredibly easy to understand in many respects. It's just weights mm. firing a sigmoid unit. Yeah, but a brain is just neurons, so it's a, it's the same thing, right? Sure, but it's, we can we can inspect absolutely everything in principle about that neural network. It really isn't. That yeah, because the scale of it is small. Yeah. Yeah, but because it's so homogenous, there's nothing to see in there. You you really can't extract things um, which can be turned into good enough meaningful um, explanations. Oh, but there I, is- I don't know if I agree with that. I just A couple of episodes ago when we talked about the Ars Electronica Museum and they had the convolutional neural network spread out over 12 monitors with every layer of the network and you could actually see the features that it was highlighting in certain situations. So you could, in a, in a sense, reverse engineer what features of an image it found relevant to uh, arrive at a particular particular classification well, that, and that's the way to do it um, yeah. rather than trying to think you can you know take the whole thing and and reverse engineer something from this this massive homogenous weight yeah um, there, i mean there there are other ways in which neural networks can like, uh, account for themselves um if you if it's made a diagnosis um let's say in cancer again rather than talking about hessian matrices <laughs> yeah. uh second derivatives it could say well here's an image of a picture which looks very very similar to the one that um, we've got from the, the scan and this guy had cancer. There, there are simple ways in which you can... It's not just about explainability. It's also about um, confidence. And um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just art or not for medical diagnosis. <laughs> feel pretty, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so you, so you, you want the network to support its decision, right? Yes. In that sense. It so doesn't have to explain it. Exactly. It, it could support it. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't really see it as a huge issue when you think, I, the way I kind of see these networks is just like a, a, a kind of a good reflection of the data set that you put into it. So even just people understanding that it was statistically like, this is kind of based on this huge amount of data. And this, I mean, I guess I can see where the problem is. You can kind of reach different um, conclusions from the same data set through different, using different networks. Yeah. And how you train, maybe, you know, like these aren't perfectly deterministic every time you train right because you do a lot of in data perturbation you're not using the same data set when you input the data set you might rotate something mm. left and right um and those little changes do add up but generally they're pretty consistent as yeah. we've sort of seen right um, the, the beauty of generative neural networks is you can use them to visualize things that's what they were originally done the deep dream stuff mm. was originally there to help um visualize what's going on in the neural network mm -hmm. and then obviously people found lots of um, artistic applications of that so you can you, you can actually get it to generate something as an explanation um mm. if you if you think about things like style transfer um you can get it to apply style to a particular image and then you can look we have to do the reverse engineering, um, but you can gain confidence that it's doing something correct. And um, we can attempt to extract meaning ourselves and then test that meaning against the neural network again. Um, so let's say we, we notice something which is the style is transferred in a certain way when it's spiky edges. Um, we could test that. We could experiment with that and say, let's give it now an image with lots of spiky edges. If it does the same thing again, then that's explained at least a little bit about its, how it's operating. And I don't see any reason why um, that can't be automated. So the software itself starts um, probing. And this is what's called um, closed-loop learning, um, that the software itself um, starts to choose its own data as input, in, order, in this case, in order to explain itself. There, mm. There's other reasons we could do closed learning. It's active yeah. learning as well. Um, mm. Yeah, the but, but the big counterexample here, so like you guys have said, in convolutional neural networks, you can generally generate sort of heat maps, right? You can maximize gradients and mm. say, like, tell me what part of the image you will most focus on when you made your decision, right? So if it was a cat, it would say like all these features of a cat and it didn't look at the background. But the biggest counterpoint to this is like, well, adversarial examples, right? You can perturb the image slightly mm. and then feed it in and it'll be like, oh, it's a pig. And I was actually looking at the cat's face. That's not really interpretable. If all you're getting out of the network is like, I'm looking at the same region, but I came to two different conclusions because the underlying pixel data was slightly different yeah. that's not very sure we're trying to come up with methods but it's not we're nowhere near actual like confidence of why it made the decision sure it's made the decision based on here but why is it a pig instead of a cat this time but there are other ways of gaining confidence which is just accuracy i mean john and i will remember when neural networks were just one of many machine learning techniques out there mm. um, well they still are i, well, I know but they <laughs> just seem to but they were many other competing techniques let's mm. say they're not then the others aren't really competing anymore and there were more than one criteria for success in machine learning um, one was predictive accuracy you know how many times are you going to get it right what is your error rate um, but that was really only one because the other major one was understandability um, and things like decision tree learning um, inductive logic programming in particular where you actually generate a logic program which can be very easily understood the benefits of those were not as quite as high predictive accuracy, but absolutely understanding what it produced. Um, and in many domains, that was seen as a really good thing. Um, my old boss at um, Imperial, Stephen Muggerton, is an expert in this area, and he worked with chemists helping them do drug discovery. They absolutely needed to know what the software had found about the positives and negatives for um, carcinogenic 
molecules in order to be able to properly engineer them. Explainability in machine learning was a big deal, but it just it got swamped by the fact that the predictive accuracy was so much more important and, and valuable. It, it doesn't useful. matter. <laughs> yeah, very, very useful. It doesn't matter if you can explain, if you can actually sell more advertising space or... Or, know, I don't know, drive a car. Drive yeah. A car. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but facial recognition. But it's going to it's gonna come back. I mean, driving a car, we, we're going to get onto autonomous cars at some stage. Right? <laughs> and um, at the moment, because crashes with autonomous cars are so rare and deaths are even rarer, the, the big firms um, can hire 100 lawyers to explain it away, and they did. Um, the, the guy who died um, while driving a Tesla, the lawyers explained that as a large white lorry going in front of a white um, horizon. Very nice, simple description, and that's why the neural network thought there was nothing there. But as car crashes and you know incidents happen more and more often, the software itself is going to have to explain them. We're not going to have 100 lawyers per one. So this is something on the horizon. And, and th- I've raised this um, philosophically in a, in a book chapter recently. Um, are we prepared to um, have a more frustrating life because we don't understand why something happens if it drives down fatality rate? So let's say the predictions are correct that, you know, road deaths will go down by 9 out of 10, um, yet those 1 in 10 which still happen at the hands of an autonomous car, you'll probably never know exactly why it happened. And that's, you know, higher frustration this is, levels. This is Simon's uh, segment of like a moral dilemma with AI. <laughs> yeah, Would this, you rather? This is, <laughs> Would this you is rather? like the trolley problem, but it's <laughs> yeah, the yeah, Simon yeah. Colton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Simon Colton autonomous yeah. Nina, would you vehicle. take that deal? I don't know. We were talking about this earlier. It's the question is: Would you rather nine people die at the hands of other humans, or one person die at the hands of an artificial intelligence? And yes. Yeah, the answer is pretty obvious. Oh, I, I agree. Um, mm. In this case, it's uh, you know the greater yeah, good you, is served. Mm. Yes. Um, but it does mean that AI will be responsible for way more deaths than it is at the moment. Well, technology has always been responsible for lots of deaths. Also, like True. an explanation of oh, the person was drunk isn't really helpful. Like, that's not really, yeah. like, and, and when a human kills another human, the explanation mm. isn't very satisfying. Yeah, it's not satisfying. But what are those explanations for? It, the, the guy being drunk is useful. It me- means it leads to laws. So in the UK, when my oh, dad sorry. was learning to drive, you could drive really drunk and fast. And people realised that the explanation for lots of deaths were drunk people <laughs> driving too fast. So they brought in speed limits and they brought in, you know... Um, right. I, I think it's like wrong that. also to assume that, that it will be 100% opaque. I think that's probably a bit naive. It will also depend on the rate of death. If it cuts 90% of road fatalities, then, okay, yes, sure, there's still going to be 10%, and people will still want to investigate those and find out why the machine fails. And so they'll build in ways to try and do that. I mean, it will have a experience that will be recorded and that experience can be, <laughs> it's, it's like a black box in a in an yeah. aircraft, right? You can play back the experience mm. and work out, yeah. well, why did this? It doesn't have to explain it itself. The car doesn't have to literally yeah. start talking and saying, I'm sorry, I thought this white van was actually the horizon. <laughs> you can replay the whole scene. You can look at all the data from the cameras. You can look at the way that the networks were behaving. And I think in many cases, you'll be able to work out why there was a problem. If a human can work it out, then it will be explainable. The thing is that plane crashes are incredibly rare. I, I agree with all what you've just well, said. The, but it's likely that but autonomous vehicle crashes will become incredibly rare too. I, well, there'll still be hundreds of thousands of them a year, I would have thought, and it will be better. Uh, for I think we're guessing there. What? <laughs> well, it, yeah, I mean, given that we have very little like proper autonomous, we don't have the level fives out there, so it's hard to... Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I'm talking about 100 years in the future, that's 
tends to be what I'm talking about anyway. Um, and you've resolved of all responsibility <laughs> for your comments because you won't be around to, yeah, good strategy. Yeah. Or it's part and parcel of being an academic. You know, you don't have to, you know, I can, I can do blue sky stuff. It's still, you know, some universities still support, you know, actual blue sky oh, not thinking. Here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing I think is really interesting is about why do we trust machines? You, you go online, you look at your bank balance, you kind of trust that that is actually your bank balance. There's a classic case of a certain processor that Intel produced. So remember it had a hardware problem and in certain cases of multiplication it would actually get the number wrong. And people relied on the results for a very long time before, until someone actually mm. went and said, this doesn't seem right and checked it. So we seem, we seem to have this kind of innate trust when the machine tells you something, particularly if it's a kind of quantifiable thing. So do you think, you know, in the medical diagnosis area, you would be more inclined to trust a machine because it's a machine? Mm. I think we've talked about this before, but I said yes. <laughs> I really do feel that way. Why? I just feel like, I mean, the the, the medical field is already so rife with like biases and prejudices. And yeah, prejudice. Yeah, it's just not really like as perfect as you kind of think it is when you're growing up. But you we get can, to a certain age, you. We can resort to experimentation. This is why science is very valuable. Um, the example I give, I, I was in Cambridge talking about this, was that there's a meteor heading towards Earth. And the physicists do the back of the calculation, back of an envelope calculation. They say it's going to hit Oxford. Um, and then a deep learned neural model, which has you know, been shown over millions of simulations to be incredibly way more accurate than Newtonian physics. The, the model says it's actually not going to Oxford, it's going to Cambridge. You would evacuate. Um, and because it can be better. Well, you could evacuate both Oxford and yeah. Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, know, you can only save one. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you could evacuate both. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But the, the point being is that we, we don't need to... The reason we trust computers is because they have been incredibly uh, reliable yeah. over the courses of our entire life. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. And that we can use that evidence to plan for the future. And they also haven't had to explain their decision-making. Like when you get your bank balance, the computer doesn't have to explain how it calculated the balance. It mm. just says this is how much money's in your account yeah. and you trust it because it works. But this this implicit trust that we've built on these machines, right? That's where it's like... It's Slippery sort of slope. Yeah it's, yeah, it's questionable in the current era of like where automated facial recognition is being used to determine if you get parole or not, yeah. right? Like then you're like, oh yes, if a machine programmed by a human, right, is doing your banking calculations, you'd think, a bank would have like tested all that, you know, like in the machine learning, maybe a, a normal person would trust it. So it's, it's, it's very it's, less explicit, the programming. It's a difference in nature of the problem. Uh, we're granting someone parole. There is no right or wrong answer. There's just a, a consensus. A, yeah. mm. And whereas your bank balance, there is an yeah. absolute. You answer. can check it. Yeah. yeah. You, you it's, could have it's just kept a your notes. You can, <laughs> you know, you could have, you know, independently mm -hmm. verified it, but that's not the case in many decisions. So maybe now AI is getting um, used in more and more scenarios. Explainability will be a big deal. Um, there's a case over in the States of people being um, not hired um, because of AI face um, mm. analysis software. You know, you've got yeah. the wrong, your face doesn't fit, I mean, literally, for this company. Um, and people are going to start pushing back against that and say, why? What was it? Was it that third eye that I have? Or, you know, <laughs> the, the long hair? Or it, you know, it, and, uh, you know, then the software's going to be either scrapped because it, it's really dragging down the reputation of the company using it, or it's going to have to be forced into explaining itself. There is a big push in a lot of big corporations to do 
AI scanning of job applicants. Mm. So basically just screen them before they come in for interview. So you can be rejected without a human ever having ever seen your application. Exactly. Does, does that does that worry anybody? Uh, Amazon trialed that system yeah. um, internally. They, they never used it, but they published that it, they found it was incredibly bad because turned out a lot of the Amazon hirees were male. So <laughs> their CV had a certain language that was used. And mm. it was basically when they had, you know, CVs from women, the language was slightly different and that didn't fit the mold of the classic Amazon employee. So it was just flat out rejecting them. So then they never actually used it, but they showed... <laughs> what the system could lead to. Mm. And I, mean, I think it's a good thing that society is kind of moving in the direction of not trusting AI technology, right? That seems to be the, not, maybe not consensus. I think we should be very sceptical. Yes, it's yeah. quite a critical kind of vibe happening everywhere. So I think that's a good thing. And I don't think, I think AI definitely is less trustable than just normal kind of technology. There are no regulations about automated decision-making really at the moment. So if a company decides to automate a hiring process or, you know, whether certain people get bonuses or whether they reject someone based on how they look. Mm. If a human did that, you know, you've got recourses to challenge that decision. But if it's automatically done by machine, there's nothing to stop companies trying mm. these things and or even governments too trying them. So I think, you know, we do really need to be very careful about when these automated decision processes start coming in, particularly the point someone makes when they're not just numerical calculations anymore, they're actually... Mm decisions which involve some degree of subjectivity, mm. then we need explainability as to how the decision... I mean, now yeah. I think about it, maybe it's a good thing because people are being so much more critical about the AI making the decision and whether or not it's fair, which obviously would not have happened if it was a human or it has not happened, you know, historically. You know what I mean? That kind of just goes under the radar because you people just have these status mm. kind of positions and they, they can kind of make those decisions. So I'm not trying to argue that it was, it's a good thing that AI has kind of done a good thing by like, I know Being this bad. is an argument, right? That AI kind of like exposes the biases in society. So maybe mm. it's pushing us in a good direction. Well, that is the reverse, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not like humans are perfect either. So if you're a parole officer, you can be bribed, you can be corrupt, you can be prejudiced, you can yeah. be all of those things. And I mean, that's why AI is biased, right? Yes. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, Amazon. That's why Amazon <laughs> like, was hiring male. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the problem is the phrase artificial intelligence. We don't have similar words um, for levels of artificial stupidity. Mm. I mean, this is Alan Bundy's line. We shouldn't be worrying about artificial intelligence. We should be worrying about artificial mm. stupidity. If yeah. someone, if a person did something as bad as that Amazon did, basically just saying he's in if it's a woman, he, he, uh, she's out if she's a woman. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, or vice yeah. versa. <laughs> um, then uh, you know we'd call that person stupid. Um, but what we do is we call this bad AI or just a data problem. Or da a data problem. Yeah, it's Classic just not. It's, it, it's artificial stupidity. I mean, maybe we need a, a whole new uh, terminology for software which is really not intelligent, but is being used um, as if it was. It does kind of expose a lot of things about humans in general, like mm -hmm. the general, the, the whole idea about why we trust certain things and why we don't trust others, the way we deal with things that we think are fallible, all of those things is very, it's a very human thing. And we're trying to integrate machines that now we're giving decision-making powers to without really kind of understanding our own condition enough to be able yeah. to say why we're doing it. I think that's pretty widespread in all of kind of like AI application. Mm. Like I'm just thinking in terms of like effective computing, trying to do that before we actually have a solid understanding of emotion. And I'm sure in every, every area you look at, it's going to be a, there's something just missing in terms of the human understanding. One last point um, that Ben brought up, maybe that'll be the last question, is he also talked about, let's say, 
So he he usually has a task for a new person who comes in, which is like an image classification task, which is sort of to train up the recent graduate. But if that task can be easily automated and we can test that a machine can classify these images pretty much all the time, do we lose something once we start sort of automating these more subjective tasks? Not in the image classification problem, but, you know, like if law decisions are made by these AI algorithms, like, and the new generation sort of never learns that. Are we any, is there any loss? That could be the next podcast topic. It could be. <laughs> yeah. But I, I give you my one cent's worth. I mean, that's always been the case with technology. So there's lots of things that, you, that, you know, all of us in this room grew, grew up never knowing or never understanding to do that in previous generations that would have been a major part of their lives. Mm. So technology always replaces things and you, it's just you have to accept that as part of the world that we live in. If you want all of the comforts and other things that we have, that means that there's a whole lot of things that you rely on that you don't have direct knowledge of mm. or experience of. So you lose, you know, I mean, you could maybe pick them up if you really wanted to. So I don't think it's real. I don't know. It How's everyone else feel? to be the point of technology. Yeah. Well, so we don't have to do it, right? My one sense worth is there are certain things that we will eventually push back and say, no, we don't want to lose that. And the example I gave at lunch was I tried to get mathematicians to use my mathematical discovery software 20 years ago. um, And slowly but surely it dawned on them. They don't want the software to make creative discoveries for them. They want the software, you know, to do the boring work for them. um, And they want to be the creative ones. Um, And there were less... Despite what people say, they were less interested in whether something was true or not or whether a concept was important or not than they were in being the person that found that concept and and proved that theorem. Not from an ego point of view, but from a kind of, this is my life, this is the joy of my life. And this, this is absolutely true in the arts as well. And I yeah. do think that um, people worry about losing humanity when software starts producing good art, as it's already producing good art. But maybe it's just not that satisfying to produce the software that itself is the art. I mean, I can see why that would be satisfying, but maybe that's why we've kind of, or like the majority of creative AI artists are kind of using it as a tool rather than trying yeah. to do the, right? Just because it's more satisfying. We it's don't not really want to. Yeah. 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 But my, my pushback on that is I, I agree entirely that we could lose some aspect of humanity if we start taking computer-generated art seriously as, as human-generated art. And again, this comes back to my pet subject at the moment, which is that it doesn't, that the third way, you can either step back from the abyss, like lots of people in computational creativity have said, and say that you know creativity, the arts, these are entirely for people, let's just make tools for people. That's one aspect, that's what creative AI really is. Um, and then there is the other angle, which is, well, it's not human, it can never be creative. And the third way, which is to say, yes, it can be creative, but in a non-human way. We can celebrate the software itself having these, uh, this machine condition, these, uh, these life experiences. And that will be another form of creative creativity and artwork in our lives. And it doesn't have to compete at all with uh, human expression. The only, the only people I've ever seen celebrating software are Microsoft employees when they release a new version of Steve. one of their... Steve. Yeah, Palma <laughs> loved it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, he used to bounce around on stage. Oh, it? man, I missed those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> developers, developers, developers. <laughs> All right, well, we're almost out of time, but I was, I was just going to go around and ask everyone what their champagne <laughs> moment what was. This? What is champagne this? Champagne moment in, in, in AI, AI this week. AI. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want me to start? Oh. Okay. It was the what, what was it was the open AI, the Rubik's cube thing, the giraffe no, perturbation, the, gira- oh, the giraffe, giraffe okay. perturbation. Well, you stole mine then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no one else has a champagne no. moment. I'm I can't to think. think of anything yeah. that happened. 
Simon? This week in AI. It's not like you to be stuck for words. I'm not in AI. I haven't really been keeping up. I've been head down programming. Oh, um, yeah. so Too busy, John. Yeah. I had one a week before. Yeah, okay, well, that counts. Um, which was in public engagement. I did a game jam with some kids back in London just before I came out. And I showed them my champagne moment for AI from a couple of years ago, which is the NVIDIA faces, you know, these generated faces. Yeah. Uh, and I said to the kid, th- this kid got interested in it. I put up some slides on the screen. Um, and then I said to him, do you recognize those faces, who, who those people are? And he's really trying because they look like they are, you know, real people. They look like they're models because they've, they've trained on the Celeb A um, data set. And then I said to him, no, that isn't the person there. That is just a cleverly arranged group of pixels, which looks like it was taken on a camera um, and, and printed out. Mm. Uh, and the, the champagne moment for me was seeing the realization on this 14 year old's face that that kind of thing can happen, that an AI system can generate that kind of thing. And, the, and it, can, it can turn your world upside down. The, the philosophy behind that is really weird. Because when we look at these images, we absolutely see a face a, of a person. One of the ones that I give the example is always that guy is smiling, but he's crying on the inside. He's in his third divorce, <laughs> you know, his ch- children hate him. And this is, a, this is just a group of pixels, but we project so much onto it. It really does shine a light onto... Uh, mm, but people know, did that before humanity. AI. Uh, sure, yeah. you can always have fake photos, but there's some th- these are so photorealistic mm. um, and, and brilliant that um, you just can't think anyone would bother to arrange the pixels, you know, in that way. Mm. And there's a difference between, uh, you know, someone wearing a disguise um, or acting, both of which are fake in many sex, and, some, and, and, and a group of pixels which isn't a person. That, that it, there's a whole philosophical difference. Anyway, so my champagne moment was that, that, that boy's eyes um, really trying to struggle with the idea and then realising that his, his worldview had changed. It was, it was a brilliant moment. Amazing. Great. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, and thanks for listening. Simon, I'm sure you'll push this out to your Twitter followers so we'll get more people listening <laughs> to this podcast uh, yeah, yeah. than ever before. I'm, I'm aiming <laughs> for 100 um, followers, uh, 1,000 followers this weekend. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah, well, okay. follow Simon on Twitter and follow us on Twitter too. Yes. You need to have more arguments, Simon. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get back on the Twitter storm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And join us in a couple of weeks' time for another episode of the Creative AI Podcast. Thanks for listening and bye. See you. Thanks a lot. Bye.